beyond the Christmas parties and the time with the family and friends, please remember that the melody of Christmas is probably not there in the top five list, but it begins here. Praise be to the God of Israel because He has come and has redeemed His people. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning we begin a new series of studies entitled The Melody of Christmas. And over these next four weeks we'll be spending our Sunday mornings in the infancy narratives in Luke's Gospel, which is chapters 1 and 2. And today our scripture reading comes from chapter 1 at verse 57. Chapter 1, verse 57, and you'll find it on page 1589 of the Church Bible. Page 1589, Luke chapter 1. We break in at verse 57, and Luke records these words. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. And the neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. And everyone who heard this wondered about it, and asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. This past week, in preparation for this morning, knowing that we'll focus on that overall theme during this Advent season of the Christmas melody, I was asking myself, if we had to name our top four or five Christmas songs of all time, what would they be? And so I checked out several websites, and here are the top five that seem to come up fairly regularly. They sometimes change in priority, but in broad terms, they are the same. Christmas song, which I tend to think of as belonging to Nat King Cole, chestnuts roasting on an open fire and so on, is certainly among the top uh, four or five. Number two, Judy Garland, if you remember the movie from 1944, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. O Holy Night is up there as well, and not only is it a good Christmas song, it's a great Christmas carol, and it's been recorded by all sorts of artists down through the decades, and is spectacular. And then, of course, our final one, which is the best-selling single of all time, and it's hard to beat Bing, and it's White Christmas. 
And having said all of that, I think most of us would say, yeah, they're probably in the top four or five. But my other question is this. What is the most sung Christmas song of all time? Not what makes it into the charts, what are the best sellers, what are the most sung, and I'm going to sing it for you this morning, and you need to join in, please. Don't leave me hanging, choir. I'm needing your support. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one-horse open sleigh. I'm going to stop you there because some of you are getting excited and I don't want to be doing that. Thank you. I bet Stan a dollar this morning that I could get the congregation singing jingle bells and he didn't believe me. So, <clears throat> Stanley, I know how painful that was, so thank you. It's much appreciated. Actually, I'm losing my Scottishness. I should have bet him $5, but I kind of <laughs> resisted a little. Now, having said all of that, the songs and the Christmas carols we know and sing during this Advent season, I don't think most of us remember sitting down and learning them. But we know them, and we know the words to them, and we know them well. Because at this time of year, Advent season, as we move towards Christmas, is a great deal of fun. It's a time for meeting with family and friends, Christmas parties, going to the theater, uh, remembering some of the great Christmas carols, and it's just full of festivities and fun with gifts and presents and decorating the home and all of that. It's a wonderful time of year, almost magical. And as I was preparing for this brief series, I thought to myself, where in Scripture do we find songs of praise relating to Christmas? And lo and behold, in Luke's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2, there are four hymns of praise. If you've got your Bible, and you're going to need it this morning as we pop back and forward a little, not too much. If you've got your Bible, turn back a page to Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And here you have the first of Luke's Christmas hymns, and it's called the Magnificat. And we've been singing it for centuries and saying it in worship services. And Luke records Mary's response to her cousin Elizabeth in this spectacular spectacular prayer. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If you are looking for a prayer to make your own this Christmas season, the Magnificat is towards the top of that list. It really is an outstanding prayer, and it, of course, it's become part of our hymns down through the centuries. Turn over the page to the passage we read moments ago, Luke 1, verse 50, uh, 67. We see the Benedictus. That's the second of Luke's hymns. Turn over to chapter 2, where you find the shepherds on Christmas Eve appearing before uh, the shepherds and the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. That's number 3. And the fourth one comes towards the middle of Luke chapter 2 at verse 29, and it's called the Nunc Dimittis. And there's every possibility we'll look at that next Sunday morning, where Simeon takes the Christ child into his arms. And utters this spectacular prayer when he prays, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. And so we have these four hymns contained in Luke's infancy narrative. And the question is this, 
Why are these of such importance that Luke included them in sacred Scripture? What is it that they say that is so significant of all the things Luke could have put in his infancy narratives, chapters 1 and 2, why put these here? And there are several reasons. But one of the first is this, and we heard a little of it last Sunday morning when Phil very helpfully took us into the earlier part of Luke chapter 1, and he reminded us this, that at the end of the book of Malachi, there was 400 years before the beginning of the New Testament. And if you had lived back then in ancient antiquity, the popular conception was this, that heaven was silent. God was distant. He was standing back and was unproductive and doing and saying nothing. But Luke, in writing his gospel, puts in there these four hymns to highlight for us that the opposite was the case. That during what appeared to be a period of silence, God was very much actively at work. And we're about to see it in a moment or two. But hold that thought and allow me to make an illustration and then we'll come back to it. When I was eight years old, I remember quite distinctly my mother sending me off for piano lessons. And I was dedicated and committed for six weeks and then I gave up. During those six weeks, I learned to play the scale. Starting with middle C, I could play up the scale. And John's going to remind me this morning, John. And that's exactly what I achieved in the first four weeks. And then there was a breakthrough moment when I came down the scale. And at age eight, I was thrilled. I gave up two weeks later, and I regret that. Uh, but as I've grown and matured, what I've also understood is this, that you begin to appreciate music at a whole new level once you learn to listen. And there are moments in music where nothing happens. There are moments of silence. It's a pause. Now, John, play me the scale in reverse and put in the appropriate pause, if you would. Joy to the world. That wonderful Christmas carol is the scale simply going down, but stopping and pausing and creating moments of silence. Those 400 years during the intertestamental period, it wasn't that heaven was silent. It wasn't that God was unproductive. But what God was doing is reflected in the words of Luke when he writes, when it was time. And Luke uses that phrase over and over and over again. And in fact, if you notice chapter 1, verse 5, notice how he begins. He writes, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Then at verse 23, when his time of service was complete. Then verse 39, at that time Mary got ready. And then verse 57, when it was time. 
Nine occasions in these opening two chapters, he uses the word time to draw our attention to the fact that God was on the loose and was breaking into our world in a spectacular way. That during those moments of perceived pause or silence, God was still active at work. And what was He doing? He was doing this. He was shaping and steering and directing ancient history and nations and characters and individuals and bringing to pass His eternal purposes and decrees. And it's all over Luke's gospel, all over the place. There are six or seven distinctives when it comes to understanding Luke's gospel. And forgive me for taking two or three minutes to stand back and help you to see the bigger picture this morning. Because the distinctives in Luke's gospel are, to say the least, distinctive. And the first is this. He ties down the work of God to particular times and places and peoples and individuals. And he does it again and again and again. He's known as the historian of the New Testament. And Luke is saying you can visit these places. These people were real people. Trace the history for yourself. It's what gives Luke authenticity and credibility and credence. He is the historian of the New Testament, and he does it thoroughly. Luke says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I have interviewed, and this is the language he uses, those who were eyewitnesses. I met with them. I checked with them. He is historical, and he is thorough. Thirdly, again and again, he uses one of his favorite words, salvation. And in fact, the healing miracles the teaching of Jesus, the acts of compassion throughout Luke's gospel is always connected with salvation. Luke goes on to talk about those who are on the fringes of society, women, children, the outcast, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan appear only in Luke. Luke delights not only to deal with the big picture of all that God was doing, but he always hones in on individuals whose lives are transformed and renewed and refreshed and revived by a work of God. That's the distinctive of Luke. He's a great emphasis on prayer. That's why we have them throughout these two opening chapters. He shows to us Jesus at prayer. He teaches us and records for us Jesus' parables on prayer. He reminds us of Jesus' practice in prayer. Luke, of course, is the longest of the four Gospels. It's the only Gospel with a sequel. Chapter 1 is the longest chapter in the New Testament. In fact, it's one of the longest chapters in the entire Scriptures, 80 verses. Luke packs it all in right there. And in chapter 1 and 2, he very cleverly uses motifs of journey, activity, movement, and intensity. You see it all over this opening chapter. Look at it with me ever so quickly. It begins with his prologue, verses 1 to 4. Then you have the birth of John the Baptist foretold to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then in verse 26, you have the birth of Jesus foretold when Gabriel comes to Mary, and Mary then travels to the hill country. And he moves us from the temple to the hill country, and then from the hill country of Judea back towards Jerusalem. And Elizabeth and Zechariah coming in at verse 57, then Zechariah's song at verse 67. Then you have 
have the birth of Jesus, when you have travel again from Nazareth or to Nazareth or hometown and so on in Bethlehem, shepherds and angels out in the fields nearby, then back to the temple where Jesus is presented as a wee one at eight days. And in the midst of all of that, what is Luke saying? This is what he's saying. Not only is God in His sovereign, eternal purposes shaping, fashioning, steering, directing nations, but He's also at work in the lives of individuals. Zechariah, whom we know from last Sunday, of course, when Gabriel came to him and said, Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will give birth to a son. He will be the forerunner of the Christ. And Zechariah refused to believe. And now, for the last nine months, Zechariah has had time, time to pause, time to be silent, time to listen as God was at work in Zechariah. And now we see here a very different Zechariah from last Sunday morning. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and has redeemed His people. Come and redeemed His people. Now hold that thought for a moment of God sovereignly working in the lives of individuals and nations. And come right up to the 21st century. For that's where we live and have our being day by day. We're family and friends. We know and love our careers and our children and our grandchildren. And in the 21st century, we live in a different world. It's not the world of the Roman Empire, but it's the 21st century. And we live in what's called a digital age. We are technologically sophisticated. We have more computer power on our phones, on our hips, and in our bags than the first Apollo astronauts had. And we enjoy Facebook and Twitter. We enjoy Google and all the connections we make. And psychologists and sociologists tell us this that the growth and popularity of Facebook and Twitter tell us this, that people are hungry for connectedness and hungry for intimacy and are hungry for significance and meaning. But they also tell us this, that in the midst of this digital playground, we have a problem, and it's this, that we want intimacy with anonymity. Intimacy with anonymity. So at any time we can pull back. At any time we don't have to become involved. At any time we are finished with the intimacy, we can step back and draw into our own comfort zone again. But please hear this. Please understand this that when we engage with the living God, there is no such thing as intimacy with anonymity. It doesn't exist because with God it is deeply personal. He doesn't transform your heart and mind and soul and then live at a distance watching. 
But he's engaged and intervening and walking with you each day and listening to every prayer and every desire and every hope and every longing. And that intimacy with him is way beyond anything we can discover in a digital world. And if you are fed up with a digital existence, there is so much more contained in the pages of this book. That's why Luke was excited, because he could see God at work in the lives of real people, intimately involved, shaping, steering, directing their lives so they could have a sense of who God was. And that's what's happening right here. That's what happened to Zechariah over the last nine months. But please allow me to give you a health warning. And it's this. Zechariah, when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that his wife Elizabeth would have a child, he refused to believe now remember, Phil told us last Sunday morning that Zechariah was the professional priest. He was the religious leader and was about to step outside and give a blessing on behalf of God to the people of Israel, and it would have been the emptiest of all professional formalities because he had refused to believe that God was at work in his life. Refused. Why did he refuse? because Zechariah was caught up with the circumstance of his own life and all that was going on for him. He had no appreciation, no understanding of the much larger, greater picture of God, none at all, no grasp that God was shaping and steering and directing entire nations and bringing to pass His purpose and His will in a mysterious, sovereign manner. Zechariah was focused on himself. But things changed in the last nine months. And Zechariah understood finally that when Gabriel spoke to him and said God was at work, he was saying to him, Zechariah, the age and stage of you and your wife is of no consequence. Zechariah, I can work in any life, anywhere, anytime, at any culture, because God was on the loose, and his purposes and plans were coming to fruition right there and then. And it was a challenge for Zechariah. And if you have ever said to God prayerfully, sincerely, fully, passionately meaning it, Father, work in my life. Cleanse me. Change me. Take me to that deeper level with you. Be ready for a challenge. He will take you at your word and take you up and fashion and shape you and renew you, but it will come with a cost, and inevitably it will be painful. Because when He shapes and fashions us, when He strips away the support mechanisms of this world and insists on engaging with us alone, 
He will strip away all that was in order to take us to the next level. And Zechariah understood during those nine months that's exactly what took place. And notice what he says here. His wife Elizabeth isn't mentioned. The circumstances of his own life don't even come to his mind. He begins being filled with the Holy Spirit. He writes, Praise be to the Lord God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. Zechariah understood that God, in all his majestic wonder and transcendent majesty, had restricted himself to become a man. He understood it. Word of the Godhead, eternally one, incarnate Redeemer, both Savior and Son, hope in dark places, I bring you my praise, dwelling among us, the ancient of days. Beloved, that's where the Christmas melody begins. It begins with Him and our awareness of Him. And let me encourage you, please, with all the sincerity and passion I possibly can, during these weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas, please, please, Take time out to engage with Him. Sit silently, listening. Father, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing in the life of my family? What are you doing in the life of my community? What are you doing in our state and in our nation and around our world? Father, are you shaping and steering and directing history still? Yes, of course he is. Of course he is. And finally, think of Mary. When Gabriel came to Mary and said, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will give birth to the Son of God. Was that a time of particular blessing for Mary? No, the opposite was the case. It was painful. It was deeply embarrassing while family and friends and neighbors nudged one another and pointed in hard direction. It was painful. But when she looks back as an older lady and recounts to Luke what took place, God was at work, and she understood it. And that is why these hymns are in here, to remind us of the joy and the wonder of God at work for this Advent season. Beyond buying the tree, bringing it home, and decorating it, beyond the Christmas parties and the time with the family and friends, please remember that the melody of Christmas it's probably not there in the top five list, but it begins here. Praise be to the God of Israel, because He has come and has redeemed His people. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for this spectacular passage of Scripture. Help us, please, over these next few weeks to immerse ourselves in your Word, to grow in our faith, to be comforted and strengthened by your grace. 
Father, thank you for this season of the year. May we enjoy it, enjoy it fully in the understanding that you became a man in order that we can know you. Father, bless us, please, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us as we celebrate the birth of Christ Christmas Eve at First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville. Service times are 2, 5, 7, and 11 p.m. More details at firstpresgreenville.org. The children in your life will love Luke's Christmas Story, a fun-filled Christmas tale written by Dr. Richard Gibbons. Books are $10 each and are available in the Vineyard Bookstore or call 864-672-1846 to order.